If you have a Bible at home, you might have it on your phone, it might be on a computer, but I'm going to read the words from Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 12 this morning. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said that the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree and I ate it. As we are entering into the season in which students and teachers all over uh, the country are going back to classrooms, whether actually physically or virtually, and as we live in the midst of 2020, which is just providing us all sorts of challenges, uh, but in the midst of pandemics, in the midst of seeing news of, of somebody getting the plague uh, in, in California, and I think there was a squirrel or something found with the plague in Colorado, of like, we are living in a, in a strange time. And so I thought it would be meaningful for us to spend some time in a series exploring faith and science. And what do I mean by science? I mean the study of the structure and the behavior of the physical world uh, that we do through observation and experiment. And so it's that study of the physical world. And so I, I want to say a few things to start, which is uh, nothing that we're going to talk about today is in that like essential dogma pattern of if you don't believe exactly this, suddenly you're outside of the Christian faith. Um, sometimes we just need to hear some safety of uh, there are places where people have differing perspectives and opinions. And as a society, we don't handle disagreements very well. Uh, but I want to remind you that you are safe in God's love, uh, that nothing about the way that you handle uh, or, or take sides on, on the conversation of faith and science is going to uh, remove you from God's love and grace and mercy. But that also doesn't mean that there's no reason to talk about faith and science because there's plenty of other implications besides just our relationship to God. We live in a world in which uh, we face challenges, right? I mean, 2020 is happening. And, and so there's societal level challenges about the way that we understand our, our connection with faith and science makes an impact. Uh, everyone, I'm sure, is aware of how much of an increase there is in kind of anti-vaccine movements, which is a a response and an angle about science. Um, in 2019, the measles had its highest case number in the U.S. Uh, in about 30 years. Uh, there was over 1,000 cases of measles, uh, which in an age in which we've, we'd kind of gotten rid of it uh, is alarming uh, to have to face something like measles or, you know, if we think about other kinds of diseases that we uh, hope to be in our rearview mirror and not to be in the future, um, that's an area in which science comes up. We can't help but in the middle of COVID realize that there's been so much scientific conversation uh, as we learn in real time how science works out in public health. As, as you have a new virus and you do new studies and you have to, you, you get new data and you reassess and you go, okay, well, I thought this was our problem and now it looks like this is the problem. And so we've seen the real time back and forth of, of science at work. And, and yet there's still people who will just say something offhanded about, well, you know, COVID's just like the flu or something like that. Um, which is taking a stance on, on science. We also have 
we get to the fringes. Uh, there is a growing number of people in this country who are flat earthers. Uh, and it's weird when you can watch video footage of SpaceX launching rockets and having their rocket launchers land back on a platform in the middle of the ocean in this kind of arc trajectory of these, these rockets, and yet people say, you know what, the earth isn't round, it's just flat. Like, we face a society that, that struggles with how to accept science and, and pushes back at times with science. But beyond our struggles as a society, churches face a struggle of the relationship with faith and science because uh, in a recent survey, uh, 59% of U.S. respondents said that, the, that religion and science were in conflict with one another. Whether they are or they are not, there's a perception at the very least that churches are anti-science to at least some degree. Uh, and so we've got societal challenges, we've got church challenges, and then we just, as everyday people, have challenges, right? Um, as you navigate public health in this world, you have to make decisions based on um, how you think is best in health and best, the best science recommendations. Um, but even more so, especially I'm thinking about the young people going off to schools uh, who sometimes come from a background where uh, there's an anxiety around science. And so how do I uphold my faith in the midst of science in this world today? And so I think there's, there's plenty of reason for us to be thinking and caring about this topic. And today we're going to kind of give ourselves a framework uh, for entering into this conversation. So each week after, after this week, we're going to get into more precise kind of topics, things about bias or things about uh, curiosity, all these kinds of topics that can bring together uh, the search for science and faith. Uh, but I want to give you some categories of what should this relationship look like between faith and science. Uh, Ian Barber gave these four categories of the relationship with religion and science. And I'm just going to mention the first one up front, because we're going to spend a lot of time with this one. Uh, but the first kind of category, which I'm sure you've seen, is that the relationship is one of conflict, right? That uh, religion and science will never agree, that there's a fundamental disconnect and there's conflict and tension. And there's actually really interesting uh, proponents of this position because it comes from both camps. You can have um, the type of an atheist person that's more militant, a little bit like the Richard Dawkins of the world, and also the more fundamentalists, uh, the Ken Hams of the world, who, who both would say they don't agree, they're at odds, you have to choose one or the other. And so from the atheist side is um, these problems of, of faith and the way that they contradict seemingly things about science, therefore throw out all of religion. And for, for people like Ken Ham or somebody, you know, like, well, this seems to contradict science, so let's throw out the science. And so from both sides, there's this kind of take that, that perhaps religion and science are fundamentally at odds and will not agree. And I think that most of us would agree that there's, there's a complexity, there's more nuance than we can talk about in, in a sermon. But a lot of this hinges simply based on just several chapters at the beginning of Genesis. Uh, that that's where most of the anxiety and the tension uh, emerges for people. And I think that one of the things that maybe you might not realize, maybe you've never encountered, is that the conflict arises from a very specific type of reading uh, Genesis. It's, it's when you read it in a very specific way that has not always been the case of how the church or how Jewish uh, readers have read these texts. And so often the challenge arises when we read things 
perhaps even more literally than the text desires us to. Uh, one of the things when I teach the early parts of Genesis that I always walk students through who, you know, you read Genesis 1, you read Genesis 2, and you don't notice the intricacies or the precision of details. Uh, but Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 actually do not have the same structure of the creation of the world. Uh, the order or the sequencing of the story is different. And when you bring to the text this desire for a literal mechanics of, well, how did all of this happen? That provides a lot of anxiety. Let me give you the examples. Uh, in Genesis 1, God makes trees, God makes animals, and then God makes humanity. And so humanity is kind of this culmination of the story. And then Genesis 2 tells creation from a very different perspective, and, and God forms a human out of the dust before there's any trees, before there's any animals. And like the text is like, really wants you to get the fact that there's no trees yet. Uh, it's like, really wants you to know that. And so it's like the human is made, and then God is like making a place for the humans in Genesis 2. And so God plants a garden and puts the human there, and then it realizes the human's alone and doesn't like it, and so God then makes animals and brings animals into the story, and well, that's not enough. And then God uh, makes uh, the woman and the man as God splits uh, the human in the story. And so I, I don't think that the editor, the original writers of, of Genesis are oblivious to this. They're not, oh no, I didn't realize I told this story out of sequence or something like that. That's not what they're trying to do. Um, we bring a different anxiety when we read the text in a very specific way. Uh, what is going on in those chapters is a matter of thousands of years of commentary history of, of us trying to discern what, is these what are these texts trying to say? What is it saying about who we are? What is it saying about the world? Um, but sometimes we reduce these texts to just simply, I want to know the literal structure, the physical aspects of things. And maybe that's unfair to do of the text. Maybe it's not even trying to do that. And I think for many people, for many people, there is some anxiety around this because they're like, well, okay. This text seems to give me some structure though, right? I mean, it talks about seven days in Genesis and, and people get this anxiety feeling like if you don't take a very literal reading, you're just bending the knee to these scientists, you know, you're just uh, submitting to, to Darwin or whoever it is. But actually, like, the history of tradition on these texts is really long and really old of, of Augustine at the end of the 300s, the beginning of the 400s. He writes about Genesis and he says, uh, he, he doesn't take these as literal 24-hour days because he's reading this and he says, the sun doesn't exist till day four. Why on earth should I think that days are talking about what we think about as days? And so not provoked by science or things like that, Augustine just reads the text and says, I think metaphorically maybe what's happening here is that that evening and morning is about God's um, inactivity and activity, that God steps in and creates and backs off and creates and backs off. And however you interpret it, uh, it, it doesn't matter so much as to say people have read these texts in a lot of different ways for centuries and millennia, and yet we get a lot of anxiety because we've only encountered often one way of reading the text. And when it comes into conflict, we get really concerned and really stressed and we don't know what to do. Uh, but there's a lot of strangeness about how do we read these texts. For example, at the end of Genesis 3, when, when the humans are, are removed from the garden, uh, the text in Genesis 3.20 says, and the Lord God made garments of skin for the man and for his wife and clothed them. 
And most of us probably read that and we're thinking about their leather jackets or something, right? Probably not that. But, you know, we think about skins of animals because we think about leather and and that kind of thing. Uh, But for for many kind of ancient interpreters, this was like human skin, (laughs) that they were like pre-skin in the garden or something like that. And we can't even imagine that. Uh, But we're just also used to really depicting the kind of fig leaves and the kind of garden Edenic uh, imagery that you're used to. But these texts are a lot more obscure and and kind of provide ambiguities more than we expect. Uh, Here's another one. How many Christians read Satan as the serpent in the story? Not that the serpent ever is described as Satan in the story, but we can figuratively read the snake as Satan, and yet we don't read other things as figurative. Um, All this to say, it's more complicated to read these texts than we often give it credit. Uh, There's ambiguities, there's nuance. And so I want to suggest that often our conflict with faith and science usually arise out of a very particular narrow kind of way of reading a text that does come in conflict uh, with other uh, physical ways of understanding the universe. You can live in this sphere. Many people live in this sphere uh, of seeing faith and science as ultimately in conflict. I I do want to give an illustration, maybe a hope and an offering of something to move beyond this. If we think about the Garden of Eden, God has all these trees. And there's only one tree that you're not supposed to eat from. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's a morality thing. It's don't disobey, don't don't do the wrong thing. That learning to do something wrong or evil uh, was the desire that you stay away from that. I think, though, that we've somehow imagined this garden as having more trees that are forbidden, uh, that there's like the, the tree of the knowledge of biology is some forbidden fruit. You know, don't, don't dare eat near this tree. Uh, or the knowledge of the, the, you know, the tree of, of astronomy or pick your science. Uh, that for many Christians, we are told like, stay away, it's dangerous. That if you study these things, if you learn these things, it's going to hurt your faith, you're going to fall away. And we treat science sometimes as these forbidden fruit trees. Uh, and so we hide from them, and maybe we, we hide from God and w- the way that God works in the world when we hide from science. And so I think sometimes we are like, uh, we are just prone when we take this model, like the, this science becomes this forbidden tree, that any time we don't like something and we say, well, why don't you believe this or that? Pick what science bothers you. And you say, well, because I'm a Christian or something like that. We, we basically ultimately just blame God whenever we dislike some scientific area of study. Uh, we just say, well, it's because of my faith, I don't, I don't believe this or that. Uh, and there's a little bit of a, a mirroring of, of Adam in the garden. Well, why are you hiding, Adam? And he says, well, I don't know which one I want to blame. Either the woman or you who gave me the woman That's why I ate this thing I wasn't supposed to eat. And so in our own lives, sometimes we don't want to deal with certain areas of science and we just say, you know what, it's just because of my faith, that's why I I disagree. Not because I've understood this topic, uh, but we just put all of the blame on God and say, God's the reason why I have this scientific perspective. And that's probably unfair uh, because there are Christians who take a different angle on that same topic. 
And we just are really comfortable hiding from actually doing the work of study and learning and, and making a claim of, well, I disagree with the science because here's an alternative path. Here's a different way of understanding something and working hard at showing a different way of understanding. Um, but we often too easily blame God. And often when we start blaming God and we say it's God's reason that we reject this tree of knowledge, what ends up happening is instead of an angel with a fiery sword blocking people from Eden, we start blocking people from the church. We start saying, nope, you can't pass unless you can uh, agree to this same kind of perspective here or something. Uh, and so if you believe th this science or that one, then we're going to start cutting you off and keeping you out of the Eden of God's church. But it really doesn't have to be this way. And I know that when that study talks about 60% of people feeling like science and faith are in conflict, we've all, many people, the majority of people have bought into this message like they're at odds, they're in conflict, they can't be brought together in any capacity, uh, they are separate. Um, but there's other ways of looking at it. And so I want to give you kind of quickly some other categories of understanding the relationship of faith and science. One is independence. That religion and science just don't intersect. Right, that um, they look at the world differently. Science is trying to understand physical things. Faith is trying to understand spiritual things. And they, these aren't going to overlap in any capacity. That they're just different. And so, for example, um, you know, if you were studying things about creation or miracles or whatever it is, you know, the science is going to look at the physical. Faith is going to look at the spiritual. And maybe you might see this in some communion conversations in certain traditions of, well, uh, some traditions that treat uh, that communion and then what's happening there is that the bread and the wine is turning into the flesh and blood of Christ. None of them, well, I shouldn't say none. Many, most of them uh, would not say that if you had a microscope out that you would find Jesus' genetic code in this bread. They're saying on a metaphysical level, on a spiritual level, something else is happening in this thing that's not physical. Uh, so independence is a model. Here's a challenge of this model of these are just separate things. They look at separate things. You end up making God a God of the gaps, of the things you can't describe, the things you can't explain. And so God's role becomes smaller and smaller and smaller over time, and so you put God in a very small box. Uh, and the challenge is that you then no longer see God at work in the midst of the, the things that happen every day in the natural processes of, of shouldn't we see God at work in everything? Uh, and so there's, there is a risk and a temptation when we, we make these things independent that we, we end up relegating God to God's own little box that then never actually influences or gets into the world. So you can do independence. You can also do dialogue. So that's like a little bit of a step up from independence of, okay, these are different spheres, but at least we're going to share insights with one another. We're going to learn together, right? And so... You think about academic conferences where you go and you talk about subjects and you say, oh, that's interesting, and then you go home and nothing changes, uh, but you, you heard some things. And so dialogue is helpful because at least you're talking with somebody, but you know, it's not going to make a lasting impact either on science or on, on faith. And lastly, there's another category, some form of integration, some form of that when we do science and we do science well, and we learn about the physical aspects of our universe, that we learn something about God. And that when we do faith well, we learn stuff about God, and that has an effect on the way things should be in the physical world. That, that we learn 
from everything and all of our pursuit of truth and who God is and all of our seeking to find out what beauty is, all of this uh, should inform one another. And there's still a lot of messiness because if you, uh, I love, um, I'm going to put a plug in for Paul Wallace. He has a book called Love and Quasars. Uh, he has his degree, I love this phrasing, of experimental nuclear physics, as if nuclear physics needed an adjective like experimental. But uh, he is also a uh, seminary-trained, um, uh, ordained minister and is, uh, works in a church environment as well as teaching in a university environment. Um, but he talks about, you kind of have a bubble. If your science is your big bubble and faith is a little bubble within it and you're integrating them, but science is the overarching bubble, what happens is, is when science rules faith, quote, it reduces faith to science. So when we only think from a natural perspective, we end up making our faith into just a natural thing. But when science is bigger, when it's, when, when faith, sorry, when faith is bigger, uh, you can make a sacred task of learning about the world that includes science. And I love Paul's language here. Um, he says, a mature faith is one that's large enough to encompass science, but humble enough not to restrict it. And that's the hard part, right? That having a faith that can handle what we learn through our scientific discoveries, but one that doesn't feel so vulnerable or anxious that we try to like squelch scientific pursuit. Because like, what does that even say about us? If we're afraid of what an experiment might show us, that's a very fragile faith. That's a very fragile way of looking at the world of instead of I'm going to find something out about the scheme of the way that God works in this world and, and, and how this physical world works. And I want to see God's beauty at work in the midst of this. Like, we should be excited about that, but we end up getting really you know, anxious and, and trying to keep it tightly wound and in a bubble and not let it expand uh, to where it takes us. But we shouldn't stymie faith that way. And so I, I got to tell one story which we all maybe all think about when we think about the relationship of faith and science. And that is um, anytime you have a person that's known by one name, uh, that shows you something, but Galileo. The relationship of faith and science in the life of Galileo in the early 1600s is complicated and more nuanced, and it's actually even more interesting uh, than we have time to do in a few minutes. Um, but Galileo lived in a world that faith and science worked together, that the church had scientists. It wasn't like they hated science. They just had a very specific model of science that had a hard time allowing it to expand to new discoveries. And so the world in the time of the 1600s, they thought the earth was the center of the universe, that all things revolved ultimately, again, about us, that the sun, the moon, the stars, all of it just circles us. We're the center. And, and things about the earth standing still and, and scripture and these other kinds of things made them feel very confident in this. And what I find interesting is when Galileo picks up on the people who are, are arguing for a, a sun-centered system, a heliocentric one in which we revolve around the sun, I think we usually think in that framework of just simply that that's all that matters is that who's revolving around what. But some of the questions that these scientists were asking were things like, wait, if that were the case, if your math is right, if your observations in your, in, are correct, those stars would have to be so much further out than we think they are. And they'd have to be bigger than our sun. <laughs> what kind of weird world is that? 
And when I think everything is about us, that the cosmos are about us, that we are the habitat that God works and that we're the only thing that matters, why on earth would I need this giant cosmic distance? This is strange. And so in the face of how do I expand to take in this kind of data, when they took that and then they took texts that talked about the sun going over the canopy and that the earth will stand still forever and things like that, they told Galileo when they said, stop teaching that this is real. Actually, the fun thing is they at first told him, you can hypothetically believe this. Just don't say that it's real. So teach it as a hypothetical. And they said, here's what the commission said to him. Uh, you can't teach this heliocentric kind of perspective because it is foolish and absurd in philosophy and formally heretical since it explicitly contradicts in many places the sense of holy scripture. So in a system in which the church was trying to integrate science, but they got to a moment they couldn't let it expand, and then they took a conflict model of, we can't go here. And so ultimately, we should talk later about all the other fun little sides of the story, but ultimately Galileo gets put under house arrest because uh, he doesn't stop, and he keeps pushing the boundaries of talking about this model. And so he is on house arrest his books are placed on a list of forbidden books. You can't read these books. They're heretical. And I'm sure the people in the 1600s in the church that disagreed with him mocked him, and they, they rejected his view. But it only took about 120 years for his books and all books on heliocentrism to suddenly be off of the forbidden books, and that Galileo's science and the science of those like him won out and the church adapted. It just didn't adapt with those who couldn't see it, who couldn't work past it. And I have to tell you that I experienced this story of Galileo from a, a private Christian school environment in which the story of Galileo was told with haughty tone, ridiculing, uh, often with too broad of language, ridiculing the Catholic church as being anti-science, not being more precise of a specific form of the 1600s Catholic Church as rejecting the science here. But they told the story as, look at how terrible the church was. They, they didn't understand that we go around the sun. And they mock it, all the while doing the exact same things, dismissing other science stuff just out of hand simply because they just can't get their mind there. And they perceive that maybe there's a, there's a tension and I can't make sense of how to make sense of this text. And so we all end up struggling because we end up living out aspects of what that church was going through, of how do I make sense of an expanding universe of the cosmos that are so large and, and the scale is so big that how do I make sense of it in my faith? And so we're going to walk through things that when you explore faith and science, that that pursuit of truth that you can learn from um, both, both that curiosity as you learn uh, science and curiosity in your faith can be good. And what are the pitfalls of, of having bias in science and the pitfalls of having bias in faith? And so we're going to walk through some topics uh, of how do I do faith and science in a way that's, that's perhaps more healthy, that's more, um, that gives people the ability to navigate searching for truth in more uh, places. Um, but I want to not let us move past without, without realizing that sometimes we are Eden gatekeepers, that we wave fiery swords when we haven't actually done the work 
to see whether it deserves fiery swords of, gu- of guarding. And sometimes we're at war with things that in re- the retrospect of time, we might seem foolish in retrospect. Uh, that why wage wars with things uh, that are, aren't necessary wars? And if ultimately it is how God's creation works, why would we fight against that? And so maybe, maybe you just need to hear that there's other options. Maybe if you've lived in a conflict model, maybe if a conflict model is all that you've experienced, just know that there are other ways of engaging with faith and science beyond just that. And maybe we might have a faith that, that develops a, a maturity that can handle the cosmic scale of God's creation, that can handle uh, not being afraid of what study might bring about. That all truth is God's truth and I can, I can accept that. And I can walk humbly and learn. And so as we enter into the season in which students go back to schools and, and teachers go back to classrooms, virtual or physical, let's think about how do we incorporate all of our lives. That God isn't just a God in a box by, you know, it's a Sunday box. How is God a part of every part of this physical and spiritual world? And that every time that you see and learn something about uh, our physical world, we also learn something about who God is in the midst of that. And so may we have faith that is mature enough to handle that pursuit. And may we not hide from God's truth. And let's please not blame God for when we do hide. Would you join me in prayer? Lord God, Lord, we ask that we would have faith to see you in the midst of of all truth, Lord, that for all the students who go back to classrooms, who learn about history, who learn about math, who learn about science, who learn about language, Lord, we ask that in the midst of that, that you'd help them see you. That learning is something that you created us to be able to do that we might seek after you in all that we do. Lord, help us to be discerning. Help us to be uh, courageous in the ways in which we venture out into, uh, into the unknown, knowing that we can trust that you're still there even when we don't understand it. Lord, I ask that you would help raise up a church that is engaged in the discussions of this world and of this time. Lord, I ask that you'd raise up scientists that, that do science well, that, that can contribute to the conversation because, Lord, we know that the implications, the ethics of how should we live out based on this, that we know that you have principles and guides that we should bring to that table. Lord, we just ask that you would Allow us to sit in the space of uncertainty, knowing that we can trust that we can find you still. Lord, help us to be a community that uh, is safe for people who explore their faith, who explore their science. Help us not to bring judgmental hearts and eyes and words carelessly and painfully into others' lives. 
Lord, speak to us. Help us ring out your songs of praise in this space. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.